you have your copies of Scripture, if you will, turn with me to Psalm 100. Psalm 100. Uh, if you don't have a copy of Scripture, the text is printed in your worship guide, and you've probably already seen that. In fact, it's printed twice. Um, as you find your place there, I want to remind you that uh, next week we will be giving attention to uh, Psalm 145, uh, and then the following week, Psalm 148. Um, when we follow that, we will follow that with our identity series, and we'll be looking at several passages in Matthew, and we'll give you those passages. Uh, and then beginning Sunday, October the 1st, we'll give our attention to the Old Testament book of Ezra. Um, nine weeks of spending time in Ezra will bring us up to Advent. So we're already talking about Advent, and we understand that uh, coming with that is the coming uh, of Christmas, and we look forward to that. Um, I share these things with you so that hopefully you will uh, can begin reading those scriptures in advance. I was thinking about it this week as we have an opportunity to look ahead at these texts. Um, and give our attention to them that uh, they really enhance our own, uh, our own personal engagement when we come here. Uh, if we've read those texts before and we've given attention to them and we've prayed through them and thought through them and meditated on them, uh, it really does help us when we come and work through our teaching. And you will see things and know things that we won't even address here, but uh, they will help you and help you grow. But even beyond that, uh, our presence and our interaction each week in here in our corporate setting goes far beyond uh, just us, but it is an encouragement uh, to each of us. And uh, we were mentioning just a moment ago, uh, each week we have an opportunity to sing and uh, I get a chance to sit here and up at the front and though I can't see you, I can hear your voices. And so I'm kind of called in between. I'm hearing the, the voices of our choir uh, and I'm hearing the voices of those who are leading us, and, uh, and I'm encouraged by that. And the same is true when we uh, have given attention to our text, uh, and it just blesses all of us as we grow and encourage each other. I will say that uh, with some hesitation I mentioned this, and I'll share this, and you'll know what I'm talking about. It was just a few weeks ago on July the 10th that our president, uh, President Joe Biden, met with King Charles of Great Britain, and thinking about this, and you'll catch it in just a minute. Uh, there's been some speculation as to whether he broke protocol um, when he touched the king's arm and back in their greeting process. And I want you to know, I, I mentioned this not to be critical or not to be political about it or, or even try to determine if he did or didn't break protocol. I don't know whether he did or not. Um, I, I just saw it as a warm and genuine gesture. The point I'm making is, is that in certain circumstances, there can be certain protocol. And when that protocol is established, uh, even the best of intentions may not be excusable uh, in the breaking of that protocol. In some respects, our text today, Psalm 100, uh, hints of a certain protocol regarding worship. Um, I'm not certain that this is the main emphasis, but it is there in this text. Um, in preparing for the text uh, and the sermon today, uh, this story uh, I came across, and it, uh, it did have a bearing on me, and I want to share it with you. 
Raymond Edmond was a missionary. He was a college president, an educator, an author, uh, and a friend to just a whole lot of Christians. Billy Graham once called him the most unforgettable Christian that he ever met. Uh, Edmund served as uh, chancellor of Wheaton College for many years, and he died in 1967 uh, in the most appropriate uh, setting imaginable for a pastor and a teacher, um, though I'm sure it was probably traumatic to those who were present that day. Uh, he passed away while preaching in a chapel service at Wheaton College. Uh, and his topic that day was on worship, which is our topic today. That morning, Dr. Edmund shared with his listeners a, a personal antidote. Uh, it involved his meeting with the king of Ethiopia some years earlier. And in order to have an audience with the king, he had to observe strict protocol. Uh, if he didn't meet and follow uh, that protocol and that criteria, he wouldn't be judged worthy of coming into the king's presence. And, and Dr. Edmund then drew a parallel with attending uh, the weekday chapel services at Wheaton. He says, you have an audience with the King of Kings. And you know, each time we come in here, uh, we have an audience with the King of Kings. That's what we come for. We come saying that we have come to worship the King. We are assembling in His presence. And there is a certain protocol that is necessary for us to do that. We can't come in just any way we want to come, say what we want to say, and do what we want to do. And he stressed this, and, and then he said, the ruler of Ethiopia or any other nation would fall on his face and cast his crown in the presence of the Almighty. And Dr. Edmund wondered if those in the audience really comprehended the awesome act of worship. He went on to offer practical suggestions of how to make chapel more meaningful, how to come to a better realization of being in the transforming presence of God. And just like that, in the very midst of his wise and godly counsel, Edmund himself was taken from among them. He had gone to meet the Lord face to face. It was the last and greatest sermon illustration Raymond Edmund ever shared. Uh, kind of a concluding remark. His, his very life was spent in worship. That is, on the mission field, sharing the gospel, teaching, preaching, and in his death, he was instantly in the presence of God. Our hope this morning is to enter into the presence of God now and to enter into the presence of God in eternity. When we draw our final breath, we want to be, we want to, we be immediately uh, in the presence of God and thereby received to stay and abide with him forever. Reminded as just a few weeks ago, uh, we looked at Psalm 23, and the closing part of that psalm is, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's consider Psalm 100, and we have heard it read, but let's uh, hear it once again. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. 
Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness to all generations. Will you pray with me just a moment? Father, would you speak to our hearts today as we give attention uh, to your word in Christ's name. Amen. Martin Luther once said that this psalm is a prophecy concerning Christ. Have you ever read it in that light? He said it's a prophecy concerning Christ. It's a call upon to rejoice, to triumph, and to give thanks, to enter his gates with thanksgiving. I believe that Luther's correct in that. In fact, I see this psalm as the antithesis of what we read in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. So I want to invite you, if you would, to turn there. Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. We'll pick up there. In thinking of this text, I, I hear the call uh, of Psalm 100, but then I am reminded of the opposite of that. In Psalm 1, 18, Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We're going to see in just a moment how important truth is. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now I want to invite you, if you would, to turn over uh, to uh, Isaiah chapter 43. And you'll hear this when you arrive there. It says, bring out the people who are blind. This is the description, if you will, of man from the prophetic words of Isaiah. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather together and peoples assembled. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witness to prove them right and let them hear and say it's true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also henceforth I am he, there is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? The point that God is making and speaking to the people through his prophet Isaiah is, you are now following other gods, and you're not worshiping and praising the God who made you. The God alone who can save you. So immediately when we think about 
what is being said, we see Paul is writing and we see that the people have done what? They have turned away from God. They are no longer looking to God, but they are in fact looking to the things that God has created and even as Isaiah would share in Isaiah 44, even the things that they have crafted and shaped by their own hands, that is where their attention is. And yet we hear in Psalm 100, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Immediately we think of this, we are reminded that the psalmist is first and foremost calling on the whole earth to worship. Now, what does he mean when he's saying, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth? Well, he's talking to worshipers. He's certainly not talking to rocks. He's not talking to birds. Uh, he is telling uh, in this psalm, he is giving imperatives about what the individuals created in the image of God uh, are to be about. He's talking to people. He's directing his attention to men and women, boys and girls of all ages in all the earth. So we see that this is very much an evangelistic psalm. In other words, it is a psalm that is speaking to the whole world, to the whole earth, to all the nations, to all the people. What does that mean for us today? It means he's speaking to us. He's calling us out and he is telling us that we are to do certain things as it pertains to God, that our hearts should be shaped in such a way as that we are to give attention to him. In other words, there is a call to all the earth to praise and worship God. But why do we need to be called to worship God? Because we are like the people that Paul was identifying, like the people that Isaiah was identifying, we are prone to worship other gods. We're prone to disregard God. I was thinking about it this week. We're prone to trivialize God. We're prone to minimalize God. We are even in some ways, we are prone to make God optional in our lives. That's in the essence of what sin is. It is to trivialize God, the trivialization of God. But what instruction did God give to Moses to give to the people of Israel? Well, this is what he said in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes and you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. And we certainly would have to agree that God left no room to marginalize him or to trivialize him. He did not make himself an option for us. He is not just something that we can attend occasionally. I was thinking on this text this week and began replacing the word love with the imperatives of this psalm. I want us to look at the seven imperatives of the psalm and we'll track through them. Number one, it says to make a joyful noise. We'll talk about it in just a minute. That word, uh, if it's encapsulated in one word, is shout. 
make a joyful noise to the Lord, to serve the Lord with gladness, to come into His presence with singing. We're told to to know that the Lord is God and to enter His gates with thanksgiving, to give thanks to Him, to bless His name. Those are the imperatives. So think about that for just a minute. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall shout to the Lord with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. You shall serve the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. You shall run to the Lord and come to Him. How? With all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. You shall enter into His gates with thanksgiving. You should thank the Lord with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might. You shall bless the name of the Lord with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might. That's what it means to love God. In other words, worship is the expression of our love for God. So when we see here in this psalm, a psalm of thanksgiving, a psalm of worship, a protocol in some ways to worship, we recognize that it is flowing from those who have a heart of love for God. It is a call on the earth to love God. But even more importantly, it is a call on the people who have been saved to demonstrate by their time together and by their time privately that they actually do love God, that He's not just an option, that He has not been trivialized, that He's not been minimalized, but He is in fact supreme in their heart and in their life and in their mind and in all that we do. So we're commanded to shout, to serve, come sing, as we were just a moment ago. And I want to tell you a while ago when we were singing uh, How Great Thou Art, um, I don't, I've never heard a choir better. I mean that. Because we were singing, we were worshiping together. To enter His courts, in other words, to come into His presence, to be thankful and to bless His name. That's what the psalm here tells us to do. Now, why are these commanded? Well, because the Lord, He is King. The command to shout is to shout in adoration and joy because He is King. He is coming to take His throne. So we shout in our worship because He takes up His rightful place in our hearts. We are His dwelling place. The Spirit of God lives in the life of the believer. Paul makes that clear in Romans chapter 8. Jesus made it clear in John 14, 15, and 16. And Adam pointed us there last week. It's the Spirit of God. It is His place of dwelling. He is enthroned in the heavens, yes, but He's also enthroned in our lives. And the life of the believer shouts because He has come and taken up residence in Him. He's King. Command is a shout of adoration and joy because he is king. Uh, It's been said that Psalm 100 is uniquely placed as the doxology for the truths that are conveyed in the preceding psalm. Well, let's take a look at that and see if that's true. Back up in Psalm 95, if you will. Psalm 95, we hear this in verse 1. O come, let us sing to the Lord. 
Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. And then it tells us why. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. Look in Psalm 96. We hear these words. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous work among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Why? Because he is ruling and he is reigning over all the earth. Look at chapter 97. Verse 9, for you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Look at chapter 98. Make a joyful noise, it says in verse 4, to all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and praises. Why? Because he reigns. He is king and he is going to judge. Look at Psalm 99. The Lord reigns, verse 1, let the peoples tremble. He is enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. And then when we get to the 100th Psalm, we are told to shout because this king has come. This king has come. Turn over to Psalm 24 because I was thinking about this question even as I uh, was working through that word in Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart and who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he'll receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Just such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of God. And then we hear this, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors. We need to understand here this poetic language. How, how do gates lift their head? A gate doesn't have a head. It's talking about the rulers of the cities, the people to look to God. Who is this king of glory? The psalmist asked. And then he answers the question. The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your head, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? Again, the question is asked, driving home this point. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Who is the Lord of hosts? The Lord Jesus Christ. We've been told who this king of glory is. He's the son of David, the son of God, Christ. The king makers who we know as a magi identify him in Matthew chapter 2. They come and say that he is the king. If you'll recall when we studied Matthew, we spent time there concentrating on that. And what did they do to this king? Well, the scriptures tell us they worshiped him and they brought him gifts. They sought him out. They came to him. They looked for him. They didn't let anything stand in their way to get to him because they were drawn to him and to who he was. 
Because God had made it known to them that he was king. At that time, he was a child. He hadn't won a battle. He had not visibly ruled over any head of state that they had seen. But the scriptures tell us what. He had come from his throne in heaven. He was the one that spoke everything into being. He had placed world leaders and he had displaced world leaders. And his coming was specifically, as Matthew told us in chapter 1, to destroy all the evil forces of the world and to save a people whom he would rule and care for all eternity in his kingdom. And what was his kingdom like? Well, as he stood before Pilate and that issue was pressed by Pilate, in John's gospel we hear that it was like no kingdom on earth. It was different. It was not an earthly kingdom. And this is the king to whom we are told to shout. It's the king that we are told to serve. It's the king that we are told to come to. It is an invitation in one sense, but it is also a command in another sense. I asked this morning, are, are, are we running to him? Are you running to him? Is your life about serving this king? Is your life about worshiping this king? In other words, are you shouting and declaring to those around you and to the rest of the earth, are we shouting and declaring that he is king? It's necessary for us if we are to reach this community that we begin shouting that Jesus is the king. That he is the one that is to be worshipped. That he is the one that is to be served. That he is the one that we should be running to. That he is the one that others should be running to. But it is hard for us, isn't it? Isn't it hard for us to say those things if those things are not true in our own lives? That was the reason that Paul was calling out the, calling out the Jews and the Gentiles alike in Romans about their life. It was a reason that Isaiah was having to stand and speak for God in the midst of a people who were not following him in the way that they should follow him and not worship him. And I'm not looking at us in judgment. I am saying that the psalmist stops in the middle of all of this and he says that we are to shout because Jesus himself is king and that there is no king like him. There's no king like him. There is no one like him. Now look at verse 3. Not only are we to shout and to serve, and, and we are to come and praise and sing to Him, but notice why. Verse 3, know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who has made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. We, are, we know that God is the Lord. And that the Lord is God. He made us and we are the sheep of his pastures. What we know is true of him impacts our hearts. If you're here today and you've trusted Christ, what you know about him has impacted your heart. Or at least it should have impacted your heart. He makes that so. I want you to think with me for just a few minutes. Not only does God give us physical life, and when we get to this psalm, we understand that he has directed his attention initially to all the earth. 
Because what he is saying is true of every person that lives, but this psalm is written in the context of the believer, the one who has trusted God, the one who is worshiping him. All the world should worship him. That's the reason that we look in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, and we are to go to the ends of the earth. Why? Because it is the ends of the earth and all the peoples that have ever lived that should worship God. That is the heart of mission. If you've never read John Piper's book, Let the Nations Be Glad, I encourage you to do that. Why? Because he points to that very fact, is that all peoples are called to God. And it is those who trust him and believe in him and who worship him now, we should be calling all people to worship God. But not only does he give us physical life when we're pointing here, notice that he is the one who gives us spiritual life. Notice the language here. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us. Yes, he has created us. He has physically enabled our physical lives. But there's more here. And we are his. And there is sense in that all of creation and every person that ever lived is his in the way of creation. But they are not identified that way. We are his people. We are his people. Turn with me back to uh, 1 Peter. We touched on this when we were there uh, working through 1 Peter, but turn over there if you will and look in verse 9 of chapter 2. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. A people for his own possession. I, I believe, and I think it's intended here in this psalm, in pointing to Christ is that Christ is the one who makes us his people and the sheep of his pasture. When we were looking at Psalm 23, what did we look at? We went back to John 10. And what did Jesus have to say? He said, my sheep hear my voice. They know me, they hear my voice, and they follow me. They follow me. We're reminded again that Jesus is a good shepherd. His sheep hear his voice. They know him and his voice and they follow him. Why do you suppose that's true? Why do you suppose that's true? Why did they follow him? Why did they hear him and follow him? Because he made them his sheep. Notice what the psalmist says. Know that the Lord he is God. That means he is sovereign over all things. And those who trust in him, he has made them. He has made them. In their trusting, he has made them his sheep. The sheep of his pasture. How significant is that? Well, it points us to verse 4. And, and I believe verse 4 is grounding, is grounding all of this in this sense. So we enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. That's the next command. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. 
When I read this verse, I was reminded of the grace of God toward me. And I was thinking about me, but I was also thinking about you. And I was thinking about all of those who have been graced by God in knowing who the king is and in knowing the king and in trusting him. I was thinking about our weeks together and our months and our years together for many of us. We've assembled for many weeks together. Most of us here, especially for the last four and a half years. And, and like you, I have assembled when I have been down, when I have had heartache, when I have felt beaten up, when I have been struggling with things, when I have been fatigued, when my heart has been heavy, when I have been under conviction. But each week, I can say this, each week I have sought to come with thanksgiving. I maybe should have been thanking God for my circumstances, and I haven't always done that. But the thing that I have not lost sight of, and I'm not bragging, I'm just saying this, I can't get away from it. The thing that I cannot get away from is the thankfulness that comes to heart that God has been gracious to me and saved me. That's the thanksgiving that is here. It's not just general thanksgiving. Here the psalmist is saying that we give thanks because he has made us his sheep. In other words, he has saved us. We talk about it often. He's forgiven our sin. He's declared us righteous when we know that we are filthy and undeserving. But we come here and worship for that very reason because God has been gracious to us. The realization of the Lord's grace is overwhelming. That's why it is not uncommon for us to be able to look back in verses 1 and 2 and find out what? Make a joyful noise. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing and celebration, zeal and passion. Why? Because by the grace of God, by the grace of God, He has made Himself known to you and He has redeemed you from the filthiness of your sin and the desperate death that awaited you and His wrath and He has saved you. And if you're here today and you haven't trusted Christ, know that in trusting Him, He will save you. He will deliver you from the domain of darkness. He will deliver you from death. And you will, as we will sing in our closing hymn today, you will be raised like him when you die. You will be, as Jesus said, that even those who die will live. Though you were dead, yet shall you live. The realization of the Lord's grace is overwhelming. And here is what I want us to hear today as worshipers. As brothers and sisters in Christ, if we trusted Christ, the distinguishing mark, one of them, one of the distinguishing marks 
of the one who has encountered the grace of God is that of tremendous thanksgiving. Luke points that out to us. I invite you, if you would, to turn to Luke chapter 7. We've had the privilege of working through Luke's gospel and our connect group, and I was overcome by chapter 7 and 17, along with others. But in Luke chapter 7, verse 36, listen to this account and, 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 and make this connection with this. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. I want you to listen to the humility that's there. Wash his feet with her tears. Dry his feet with her hair and kiss him. Breaking and this, this perfume, expensive perfume over him and anointing him. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. He said that to himself, and Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. He, he didn't know. He just, thought he, just, he just thought Jesus was going to address him. So Simon, I have something to say to you. Can you imagine the thought that it just, he just spoke this to himself, just had this thought, and then Jesus said, Simon, I have something to say to you. Say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? Who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I wonder if we are not expressing thanks, and you would have to determine that. 
I wonder if we are not assembling here on Sunday. I wonder if we come in here without hearts of thanksgiving because we have not understood the devastating state that our sin has placed us in, and thereby we have not acknowledged the greatness of the grace of God to save us from that sin and to forgive us. I want to call to you today, young and old, whoever you are. The grace of God is amazing. And once the grace of God has gripped your heart and you have received the forgiveness of God, there will be expressions of thanksgiving that will naturally flow. Uh, Adam mentioned a moment ago that when we are away from the Word of God, and he, and this, he didn't say it this way, but this was, this was how I was receiving it. When we are away from the Word of God and away from the preaching and teaching of God's Word and the grace of God is not held up and our sin is not held up before us and the great work of salvation is not held up before us, we are not likely to give thanks We will not edify one another. But when we are confronted head on with our sin and the greatness of the grace of God, what else can happen but for us to come and to praise Him and thank Him and exalt Him and shout when we are down? Shout that He is King and that this King has sought us out to make us his. One final passage of scripture I want us to look at. Look in Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, verse 11. And I want you to picture this. This is huge here. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers. Now, again, understand the culture. These lepers should have been nowhere about him. In fact, if they shouldn't have even been on the same path, should not have been traveling along the same way, they should have made themselves scarce from anyone for fear of defiling those who were, at least in that way, undefiled. But not these lepers. They were there They stood at a distance and they lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. In other words, he said, go show yourself to the priest. And and there's protocol for that. And they knew that. But he said, you go do that. And they went and they were cleansed. Then one of them when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet. What what does it say? Giving him thanks. Luke was making a point here. He was a Samaritan. And then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine 
Was no one found to return and praise God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. If you're here today and you've trusted Christ, you are the Samaritan that has been cleansed and made whole and reconciled to God and enabled to, as the psalmist says in Psalm 100, look there, look back in our text, Psalm 100, made able to enter into his gates, made able to enter into his courts, made able to enter into his presence. Isn't that what we're about? About entering into the presence of God. That being made possible by Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. The one who gave his life as a ransom for many. I want us to conclude with verse 5. For the Lord is good. How good? Real good. Better than real good. He is the best. That's what the psalmist is pointing to. That he is the best. He's already said there's no one like him. He is the king. The psalmist has written before there's no one like him. There's no God. There's no one above him. He rules and he reigns. And not does he just rule and reign, but he does so Good. His steadfast love endures forever. Steadfast love endures forever. Close to our closing comment is this He loves us forever in Christ. If you are His, He loves you forever. In Christ. Paul had this to say. God demonstrates his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. That we may be in his presence for all eternity. Entering into his courts. To praise. To sing. To shout. To declare his goodness. And we will do so. Giving thanks. The Lord deserves our worship. But not only does he deserve it, he desires it. His children gladly give it. Why? Because it brings joy to them to see him exalted. I thought about this in relation to my own dad. There are those of you, and I've had opportunity to express to you, but there are those of you who have visited him and reached out to him. There is nothing that pleases me any more than for somebody to care about my daddy and to go by and see him and encourage him and sit with him. He's my daddy. He's my daddy. If that's true of him, how much more true should it be of the children of God to long for him to be exalted, to long for him to be loved by others, 
to long together with those who love him and exalt him and express that goodness toward him together. Don't you know that's what it is that we are about on Sunday mornings when we come together? We are coming together as people who have been saved by God and I'm coming to be with you so that we can come together into the presence of God and shout and declare his goodness and to thank him and to be encouraged by his word. It brings joy to them to see him exalted and praised and they give worship and service because they have their lives to be thankful for. I, working through this, I, I ended with this thought, and this is my closing thought. We gather here every week. Uh, even in the planning of our service, this is understood that we have an opportunity to engage in worship and singing and direct the, the declaration of the goodness of God. And we are doing this in concert with the angels in heaven. And we are doing this in concert with those souls who are gathered around the throne now in some way with their focus and their minds and the eyes of their soul on Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. So we, can't, we, we really can't come in here lazily with this. They are not dealing with it in that way. He is the supreme focus of all that they have going on. And we are rehearsing today what we will do for eternity. We are rehearsing today for what we'll do for eternity.